It's all very, like, the reason this works for me is I've set up a bunch of little macros that do kind of standard tasks for me. So if you go ahead and anyone who's, like, listening and trying to follow along, the commands that I'm saying won't work for you because they're custom commands that I've built in. Um, But I'll I'll essentially just, like, do a little audio demo of how I would go about adding a couple HTML elements and some styles for them. And I'll be doing this with React because that's what my bindings are set up for, but ultimately it's going to sound quite similar to if I was just doing it in vanilla HTML and CSS. Elm, H1. Title, hello world. Slap Elm paragraph. Say, this is a paragraph example. Go down. Slap second. Style paragraph paragraph. Rule, color red. Rule, font size 10. Go down, slap second. Styled H1 title. Rule, color brown. Yeah, I guess that's sufficient. I was trying to like think of other like neat little tricks, but that's essentially it. Bandwidth for changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. Our feature flags are powered by LaunchDarkly. Check them out at LaunchDarkly.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Get $100 in free credit at Linode.com slash changelog. This year, we simplified and improved the changelog.com setup by further replacing Docker Swarm and Terraform with Linode Kubernetes Engine LKE. Not only is this new setup more cohesive, but deploys are 20% faster and changelog.com is more resilient with a mean time to recovery of just under eight minutes. Interacting with this entire setup is done via a single pane of glass with K9S. Linode is our cloud of choice. We trust them and we think you should build anything you're working on, a fun side project or that next big infra move at work with Linode. The best part, you can get started on Linode with $100 in free credit. Get all the details at linode.com slash changelog or text changelog to 474747 and get instant access to that $100 in free credit. Again, linode.com slash changelog. What's up? Welcome back, everyone. This is the Change Local Podcast featuring the hackers, the leaders, and the innovators in the software world. I'm Adam Stukoviak, Editor-in-Chief here at ChangeLog. Today on the show, we're joined by Josh Como to share the story of how he codes without using his hands. Josh is a front-end developer, and earlier this year, he developed cubital tunnel syndrome. It's a repetitive strain injury in both of his elbows, and as a result, he can't use a mouse or keyboard for more than a few minutes before burning pain shoots down both of his arms. Needless to say, Josh didn't choose the path of giving up. And today on the show, he shares his journey and the fascinating system he developed to continue to code and do what he loves. So Josh, here you are on the changelog. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Yeah, it's great to be here. It's exciting. It is exciting. We're happy to have you. You've been doing some really cool stuff, not really by choice, but kind of by necessity. And it's resulted in a cool blog post and very interesting discussion around accessibility, all sorts of things on coding when your when your hands don't work or they hurt or maybe some people have uh, their amputees. We get in these circumstances as developers where our hands are no longer available. What do we do? And you found yourself in that circumstance. You want to tell that story? Yeah. So uh, I've been, you know, a developer for quite a long time now, and a core part of that is using your hands. Um, I got to the point where I was having some unrelated wrist issues. So I went to a physiotherapist, which I had been seeing for a while, and he gave me some exercises. And the exercises he gave me made, like, I injured my nerve doing the exercises, which there's like a cruel bit of irony there that I was Mm, trying to backfire the situation. Yeah. 
Um, ultimately, it's not the physiotherapist's fault. It was what I've come to learn is that it was kind of a ticking time bomb because I had nerve mobility issues, right? Like when you move your arms, your nerves slide around and mine weren't able to do that super well. And so what happened is I essentially, I pulled a nerve. Um, it got inflamed and irritated and really annoyingly, like the thing that irritated it the most was trying to type. So like the posture of sitting with your arms bent and typing, um, really irritated the nerve to the point that, uh, within like three or four minutes, I would get this burning in my elbows. Sometimes it was in my wrists. Uh, I went to the doctor or rather I zoomed with my doctor because of the times we're living in. And he said, essentially, it's probably something called cubital tunnel syndrome, which is a type of ulnar neuropathy. So the idea is you have a nerve that runs from your neck to your pinky, and that nerve is getting compressed because it's been irritated. So it's essentially just uh, mild burning pain that progressively gets less and less mild if you don't stop what you're doing. Um, so I was essentially only able to type in really short bursts. And if I tried to do that for more than like a dozen times a day, um, it, my arm would just be very unhappy with me and the next day it would be worse. So it essentially, like, for a couple months, I wasn't using computers at all. I essentially took the opportunity to just, like, go on lots of walks and uh, play video games, because for whatever reason, video games, like, holding a joystick wasn't as bad. Um, I also, of course, experimented with lots and lots of other remedies. So I got myself a standing desk. I saw a new physiotherapist. I saw an occupational therapist. I tried a whole bunch of different anti-inflammatories. I got custom splints made, a lot of different exercises. Lots of stuff, right? Like, essentially, I ran the gamut. I have three or four different ergonomic keyboards, um, tried a lot of things. None of them really helped. Uh, and then a coworker suggested to me, well, why don't you try coding by voice? And of course, the, the initial response that I had to that was, oh, my God, that sounds awful. Because, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, coding, like, voice dictate, like, dictation in general is pretty good. Uh, taking what you say and outputting it in English sentences, and I imagine other languages, too. Um, but coding is a lot of syntax and grammar and not a lot of dictionary words. So my thinking was, am I going to have to literally like dictate character by character and just how difficult is that going to be? Uh, right. What I, uh, I quickly learned that it was a little bit less tedious than I was expecting. And happily, um, uh, that's become, I mean, actually it's my situation actually is getting better in the past few weeks. So I have been transitioning back to typing somewhat, but um, for at least the past three, four months, my primary input mechanism has been through dictation and also through eye tracking. Mm -hmm. And we'll get into the details of how all that works. The eye tracking bit is very interesting. I went through a very similar circumstance to you. I think a lot of developers go through this. Now, not cubital tunnel syndrome, but carpal tunnel syndrome, which is in the hands. Yep. Uh, all forms of RSI, repetitive strain injury or stress injury, where just non-ergonomic typing or whatever it happens to be, just long sessions, right? Cranking out code or if you're a writer, you're writing prose, whatever it happens to be. People who sit at their desks or even stand at their desks and just type all day, a lot of us have these problems. Usually it's because our hands are not in the right you know, circumstance or whatever it happens to be. And I was getting that exact same problem and I was beginning to think like, what if I can't fix this? Uh, mine was in my left wrist slash pinky, like the outside of my hand. And it would start off, every day would start off normal. It sounds like yours was like three or four minutes of relatively normal and then the pain would begin. Mm -hmm. Mine would start off until like, you know, 10 a.m. I'd start to feel it. By noon, you know, I was ready, I needed that lunch break. And then in the afternoon, it would start to really hurt. And I couldn't find a solution for the longest time. I tried ergonomic keyboards. I tried, uh, one person said, get those 
relaxation metal mm. balls that you twirl in your hand. I can't remember what those are called. Because uh, that'll help your move it around, you know, take free breaks, all that kind of stuff. Eventually, I found a solution, which was simple in my case. Uh, my particular problem was merely because of the way I shifted my left hand to reach the lower left hand key, uh, which was the control key on that keyboard, because mm. there's tons of keyboard shortcuts is the control key. And so I was doing this, and the listeners can't hear me, but I'm basically you know, moving my, my left wrist like to the left, like down to the left, over and over. And every time I use a keyboard shortcut, and you know, as a developer, we're copying and pasting, we're doing all sorts of things in Vim, et cetera. So I found that all I had to do was switch my tabs, my, my caps lock and my control key. And it just took that one motion away. And over time, the, the, the problem just went away. And I was very fortunate for that reason, because I was thinking like, as a developer, I need a few things, really which is way less than a lot of other people, right? I need my brain to function correctly. I need my eyes. Um, and I need my hands. That's kind of what we need, right? Those are the faculties of our body that are most important for writing software. Yeah. And I started thinking, if I lose my hands, what am I going to do? Go find a whole nother career? And so surely you were faced with similar thoughts of like, this might be the end of the road for me or because you didn't find a nice little keyboard switch to fix your problem. Like yours is a much more serious problem than I had. Yeah. And a couple of things I want to stress. One is uh, most people who develop cubital tunnel syndrome, uh, it goes away essentially on its own. Spontaneously is what they say on really? the media. It just goes away. Um, usually it lasts. <laughs> yeah. Usually it lasts four to six weeks. Um, so, and okay. I think it's like 85% of cases go away either within four to six weeks or like within a couple of months with some physiotherapy. It's very, very rare that it lasts this long. And, uh, so because of that, uh, I don't want anyone to like panic if they start to feel some of these symptoms. Right. Um, but I didn't really have that much panic myself because I kept seeing doctors and physical therapists and all of them said like, oh yeah, that'll get, that gets better in like six to eight weeks. Uh, it was frustrating to keep being told that when longer than that has passed. Um, right. But it was, no one has said that this is like a lifelong a thing. A lifelong and thing. Like you may have like episodes of it, but it typically like it, it doesn't tend to be this sustained long-term issue. So uh, yeah, it was definitely like there was some panic there, but by the time it occurred to me that this wasn't going away in any sort of reasonable time frame, I had already switched to dictation. So it was a pretty big weight off my shoulders. Is the state of it, the prognosis currently chronic that it will never go away, or is it something that you're hopeful to eventually... Spontaneous. Well, <laughs> others have experienced, and you, you mentioned your blog post during Edge Case. So right. I have yep. a personal connection to being Edge Cases in scenarios. Like, that happens to 1% of the people that ever get this kind of thing like that. I'm in that 1% usually. Um, <laughs> but is this something that you've figured out that is chronic for a long time for you, or are you hopeful that it will eventually get better or spontaneously correct itself over time. You mentioned your nerves, not uh, acting like everyone else's nerves might in the situation. Yeah. So one of the things that made me, that had started to get me comfortable with the, or not comfortable, but like settling into the idea that it may not go away is that I have a, like another one of these rare things that I think is why I'm maybe in this edge case is that when I bend my arm, my nerve shifts, shifts out of place. It's called subluxes, subluxation. And uh, the idea is that like most people, your nerve sits in a canal and if it shifts out of place, it's this constant source of friction. So the nerve has a harder time healing when it gets injured because it's always moving around. 
Um, that said, it has started to get better. Like uh, I briefly mentioned, uh, but it's I've shifted away now. I still use dictation a fair bit, but I'd say I can get four to five hours of keyboard typing time a day now, which is you know a lot better than the four to five minutes. Yeah. And funnily enough, it wasn't like some exercise, and I don't even think it was a matter of time. The shift that happened was more mental than anything. Uh, so a bunch of people kept telling me to read this book, The Mind-Body Prescription. And the idea with this book, and it's not, it's not like uh, generally recognized as uh, like actual medicine. It's a little bit on the fringe. So mm -hmm. let me state that right up front. But the idea is a lot of chronic pain conditions. So not acute pain, not like the six to eight weeks thing, you break a leg. But chronic pain is often like caused by the brain. Like essentially you have unresolved emotional turmoil and the brain sees this as an opportunity to draw your attention to this like physical problem because it can be a little bit less stressful than dealing with emotional things. Now, I've done a lot of like soul searching. I have yet to figure out what the underlying emotional turmoil is, but yeah. the idea that it could be mental alone has gotten me thinking about things a little bit differently. And one of the things that really resonated with me was the idea of like this Pavlovian response. So in the same way that like, for six to seven months now, maybe a little bit longer, whenever I go to type, it triggers, like, I feel pain. And mm. after enough time, that just becomes, like, an ingrained response. So what finally started working, because I had just stopped typing altogether. Like, there were months where I didn't touch, I didn't have a keyboard on my desk. Um, and I, like I, that's a bit of a lie, because I kept one wirelessly that I could pull out just to do, like, annoying keyboard shortcuts sometimes. But it just like when I started reading this book, I just said, let me see what happens if I try typing for 20 minutes. And of course, after five minutes, I started to get the little bit of burning, but I pushed through it. I just said, like, let me just keep typing. Um, and over the course of two or three weeks, I just extended that period a little bit longer and a little bit longer. And it was fine. Like there, I didn't face any sort of negative, uh, negative consequence for that. So I think a big part of it in my case was just this mental conditioning that had happened. I should also say, um, <laughs> I don't generally advise people just to push through, like usually pain is a signal that you should stop doing what you're doing. In my case, I went for an MRI, I went for an EMG, right. I went for an ultrasound and all of these things came back normal. So there was no structural issue in my case. Uh, and no one told me that I shouldn't do this. Like there wasn't any indication of like, be very careful because it could get worse. Um, the thing that I have been watching for and that other people should watch for is uh, muscle weakness. So if you find that you're no longer able to grip things, that's a sign of nerve damage. Similarly, if you, your fingers start going numb. So if it's just pain, uh, in my case, and of course, don't trust me, I'm not a physician, but in my case, uh, pain doesn't seem, no one has told me that pain is a sign, in this case, that I shouldn't be pushing it. Like essentially, if I see the weakness, if I see the numbness, then stop doing what you're doing. But pain essentially might, in this case, not be a, a, a reasonable reflection of injury or damage. Yeah, definitely the opposite case of an RSI like carpal tunnel, where the more that you just power through, because a lot of people with carpal tunnel will end up where they are because they did not address the issue, and they just continue to type in, in the exact same circumstance until they need surgery, basically. So we see a lot of people that, you know, the only way out of carpal tunnel is a pretty drastic surgery in the hands. Whereas if they would have found solutions early on and not powered through the pain, then they would have been, been better off. So yeah, why uh, MMV in all these cases, we're all different and our mm -hmm. mileage may vary. And I think definitely, like I've always been really protective of my own body. So the moment it started, I'm like, hey, I'm taking a break from computers. Like I was the opposite of that person. Mm. Um, I think if you have an acute injury, then definitely don't try to power through that. But when it gets to the chronic, like six plus months, right? When you get to a certain point, 
this isn't an injury that lasts that long generally. Like either it heals and it gets better or it gets worse and worse and worse because you keep kind of pushing your body past what it's comfortable. And not seeing the other symptoms of like the condition progressing, you know, the, the weakness, the nerve, uh, the numbness, all right. of that suggested to me that like, no, there's something else a little bit here. So take us back to the solution then. So your coworkers said, what about voice dictation? And you'd never even considered the thought. Yep. I have seen a few other people do this. And in fact, in your blog post, you reference Emily Shea and her uh, Python. What was her talk? Let me grab it real quick. It's called Pearl Out Loud. Pearl Out Loud, not Python. There was a Python one and a Pearl one. Emily Shea is Pearl Out Loud. And then Tavis and, Rudd is the Python one. Yeah, there you go. A couple of people who've, you know, trailblazed because they had to. And I assume you watch those talks and you think, okay, you know, I can start to devise my own system. There's software. Go go a little bit into like how this works because you didn't start from first principles or scratch, right? There's some software out there. There's some people that have done this. And so you started to adopt and adapt these solutions. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I think Tavis was one of the first people that I saw doing this. And he essentially did start from scratch. He just came up with a bunch of Python scripts that would process his voice. I mean, I'm sure he didn't come up with a speech recognition, but all of the processing. Um, and then Emily's talk was super inspiring because it just it answered a lot of the questions I had about, like, how does this work? Like, what is the process like? How do you deal with homophones? Like all of the things that just seem like it would make it really difficult to work with. Um, so the software that I use is called Talon Voice. And it's, there's a free version and there's a paid beta version. The way it works is you join the creator's Patreon, you get access to the beta. Um, I don't actually know too much about the distinction because I just went for the beta right away. It's kind of a monthly cost type deal through Patreon. And essentially the way that it works is it hooks into whatever speech recognition system you want to use. Uh, it comes with its own. You can also use Dragon, which is kind of the industry standard. I think right. you can use the built-in one with macOS. And essentially it will just take what you say and do something to it. So everything that you utter is processed through some sort of a command. So the simplest thing you can do is you can say, say hello world, and it'll output the text hello world, lowercase and spaced. Um, say is an example of a formatter. There are other formatters. So you can say camel hello world, and it'll output hello underscore world, or, or sorry, hello as lowercase and then world with the uppercase, or snake hello world to add the underscore. Right. Um, you know, there's like a half dozen of those just typical formatters. And like that's kind of the idea with everything is you say a command and then you give that command some text and it's essentially just calling functions, right? Like in this case, we have a function called snake and then it, the argument to that function is hello world and then it processes it. It does all the kind of the grammar stuff of uh, shoving the words together or adding mm -hmm. the syntax. So that's essentially the idea, but it gets taken a lot further than that. Uh, and there is some stuff that comes kind of built in. But the really cool thing about it, too, is that everything is modifiable. So when you download Talon, it comes with a bunch of Python scripts. And those scripts are kind of, they, they manage every, every command that you would say you have access to and you can change. So like if, you know, I want to add my own formatter, or if I don't like the way Snake works, I want to have double underscores, uh, you can totally just hop into the Python uh, script, script and update that. So it's really, really cool and kind of like unlimited in terms of its potential, right? It's up to you how much time you want to spend customizing it for your needs. Um, yeah, in my case, I've added like maybe a dozen, maybe a couple dozen at this point, little commands just for my own personal workflow. So writing React and CSS and that. Uh, I don't actually know too many folks in this space that have been using it with React a lot of the time. Like we mentioned, Emily does uh, Perl. So uh, I just kind of went off on my own in that very specific, like domain specific way. 
but a lot of the stuff that I've that it comes with is really cool. Uh, just another example is if you want to switch windows, um, you can just say Command Tab right on a Mac or Control Tab, uh, and just like vocalize keyboard shortcuts, or you can say focus application name. So I could say focus Chrome and it'll switch which window I'm currently looking at. I wonder if you, do you find yourself less distracted because, you know, switching tabs is like a pain in the butt, like focus <laughs> Chrome. I just feel like I would switch away to Twitter way less often if I had to verbalize that move. You know, yeah, I can do it. For sure. Uh, I can do it second nature just with my fingers without even thinking about it. Yeah, it adds a little bit of friction to just about everything that you do. So that can be annoying, right, when you're trying to get something done. It's like you can feel like your brain is now moving faster than your voice in the same way. Like that happened with typing too, but especially with this. Uh, but yeah, the silver lining to that is definitely that it discourages behavior that uh, like it just doesn't feel as worthwhile to spend the time uh, switching over to Twitter. Can you talk a bit about the phonetic alphabet that you have to, that you use? I know it's kind of different than so I was in the military, so I'm familiar with Alpha, you know, Beta, Charlie, and all that stuff. Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, all those. Uh, I said Beta, but uh, I was wrong. <laughs> but uh, you're a little but, rusty. But those are multiple syllables, which hence my rust. Uh, and you've shortened it to sort of like you know, single syllable words. Can you talk through the the alphabet that you have to use? Yeah. So, and this, you know, just to give people a bit of context as to why this is necessary, English is a really annoying language in the sense that like B and T and P, like a lot of our letters sound near indistinguishable. So you'd wind up with a lot of like typos if you just went with that. Um, there is that NATO phonetic alphabet that you mentioned, but uh, a lot of this, like it sounds almost trivial, right? The difference between a one syllable word and a two syllable word. But when you're rattling these things off, like it really helps to be as short and concise as possible. Um, so I didn't come up with the alphabet. It, com it kind of comes with Talon or the Talon community package, which is the most popular kind of uh, collective resource of Python scripts for Talon. And essentially it goes air, bat, cap, drum, each fine, gust, harp. Uh, like I'm not forgetting the letters. I'm forgetting which order they come in. Um, the only <laughs> two-syllable one that I know of is J. J is jury. Um, some of them are a bit strange. Like uh, I is sit, which starts with an S, but uh, I guess the main sound is an I. Um, huh. But yeah, the, the very first thing that I did is, uh, so I have uh, a Lightner box, which is essentially this like flashcard system. It's spaced repetition. Is a, like this, uh, the Lightner box is a tool to practice spaced repetition. Um, and I used this a long time ago when I was trying to learn Japanese. I use it a little bit for various things at work. Um, but essentially I just took all of these letters and put them on flashcards and then every day I would kind of drill them. And uh, it works well. It works like kind of surprisingly well. And to the extent that when someone asks me to spell something, I have to make the mental effort to use like the actual alphabet. And I've caught myself a couple times now just rattling off things that don't make sense. Um, but yeah, it's essentially just this carefully designed language where each, each letter sound sounds unique enough that I don't think I've ever seen the program get it wrong. Um, and it also, numbers are unchanged. So you would still say one, two, three, four. Um, so that's essentially the calculation that they made is just finding unique sounds for every possible character. Can you spell happy for us? Harp, air, pit, pit, yank. Give me another one. This was fun. <laughs> red. Uh, that one is tricky because R is red. Red each drum. Oh, okay. Also, red <laughs> is a homophone because I could have used the past tense of read, right? I read something oh, right. versus yeah, the so color red. So that brings us to homophones, right? Yeah. Which so is another huge problem, isn't it? It doesn't come up as often as I was worried about. But essentially, yeah, like if you say, uh, the one that constantly gets me is sight because I might say like visit my site and I want S-I-T-E. What I wind up getting is S-I-G-H-T. Uh, right. And there's also C-I-T-E, right? To cite an article. 
Um, so the way that it works is if you've caught yourself, if you've said something that has this, you have to select that word, which I can talk about a little bit as well, um, and then say the word phones. And if the, the Talon dictionary only has two matches, it just swaps them, it toggles them. Uh, if there's more than two, it pops up a little menu uh, with them being numbered. So it would say like one site with S-I-T-E, two site the other way, and you would say pick two. And then it would just replace the currently selected text with that alternative. Um, selecting text is interesting. Uh, the way that I've done it, and truthfully, there probably is maybe better ways to do this. I've kind of just gotten stuck in my ways is you can say go left if you want to move the character, like the cursor left, right? The same as the left arrow on your keyboard. Um, and you can give that a repetition number. So if I say go left eighth, it goes left by eight spaces. Um, eighth is kind of a weird, like, so they're ordinals, right? Usually you would describe this as like the eighth of the month, or you wouldn't mm -hmm. usually say like do this eighth times. Uh, but the reason you don't just use do this once, or like you don't say like go back eight is that eight is the vocalization to put the number eight. So there's like a bit of a conflict. Right. There. So you would say go left eighth or go left fifth or go left 123rd. And it'll perform that action, which is moving the cursor left that many times. Uh, you could also say like option left third, because, you know, if you hold option and press left, it jumps by a word. So if I'm going to go back three words, I would say option left third. And then to select the word, I would say option shift left, because that way it does the other, the option left thing again, but holds shift to select it. A lot of mental gymnastics, it seems. And it's it's similar to the way you might speak different languages. We've uh, had the luxury of talking to many people across many boundaries geographically in this world. And, and uh, we've spoken with people who don't have English as their first language. And when we're done with the call, they're like, whew, you know, like that was tough. And, and mm -hmm. Jared and I are like, what was what's the issue? And they're like, well, that's not our first language. So the whole time we're just constantly playing mental gymnastics in terms of like which word makes sense, you know, and constantly kind of keeping in check. Do you find yourself in that similar scenario? Cause you're sort of always thinking in terms of like the nuances. It seems very nuanced, very tedious with how you have to navigate via your voice. Yeah. I would say that the interesting thing about it. So like, you know, it, it took me a long time to get comfortable with typing just like as a human growing sure. up, but also yeah, like learning right. keyboard shortcuts with my editor and that. It is a bit of a mental, it's kind of, and actually this was an experience I had initially, was just I found myself, like if I was writing a blog post, the tone of my posts took a bit of time to get right. Like just the changing how I'm outputting this thing changes the way I think about it almost. And that to me was a bit like maybe for two or three weeks I struggled with that. Um, it's just like you're so used, like the thinking process is so tightly connected to the typing process, right? Like it's kind of like if you were to write code on a whiteboard, it's similar in process, but the output mechanism is different. So it makes it more challenging. Happily, that's something you get used to. Um, so it, it doesn't really bother me anymore. Um, in terms of like the, the frustration with the process, the mental effort, you get used to it. Uh, and now it's, it's, it's sort of become second nature uh, in the same way that like it does require a lot of mental overhead to... Uh, if you if you were performing the same thing with keyboard shortcuts, like if you ever just watch your fingers while you're doing these complex combinations, like it looks kind of wild, uh, but it's just a matter of like you learned this trick and you've practiced it enough that now it's muscle memory. It's kind of the same deal. How would you spell the word break? Well, it depends on uh, which one, but let's go uh, with the E-A-K. It would be bat red each air crunch.
Our friends at Retool help you to build internal tools remarkably fast, stop wrestling with UI libraries, stop hacking together data sources, and stop trying to figure out those access controls. Start shipping apps that move your business forward. Learn more and try it out for free today at retool.com slash changelog. Again, retool.com slash changelog. some live coding via voice josh and you're obviously gonna lead the way because you're the one who does this i'm not doing it we're we're, <laughs> we're not good at this you're you're clearly good at it you did a demo on your site which is super cool but uh for audio's sake just to give the listeners uh, an example they can hear here on the show which is also a, what are those called a homophones when they're the same word two different meanings is that right yeah right here here anyways here here Take us away, Josh. Do, do some live coding for us. What are you going to do? Set, set the stage. What are you going to do? Yeah. So I'll give this a shot. I should also say that uh, it's all very, like a lot of the, the the reason this works for me is I've set up a bunch of little macros that do kind of standard tasks for me. So if you go ahead and anyone who's like listening and trying to follow along, the commands that I'm saying won't work for you because they're cu- custom commands that I've built in. Um, but I'll, I'll essentially just like do a little audio demo of how I would go about adding a couple HTML elements and some styles for them. And I'll be doing this with React because that's what my bindings are set up for. But ultimately, it's going to sound quite similar to if I was just doing it in vanilla HTML and CSS. So first, I have to make sure that I've enabled it because uh, there we are. So essentially, what I would do is I would start by saying uh, element h1. And then my actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to code a bunch of stuff because I'm already getting distracted. I'm going to code a bunch of stuff right. and I'll explain it afterwards. Yeah, just code it up. Cool. Elm, H1. Title, hello world. Slap Elm paragraph. Say, this is a paragraph example. Go down. Slap second. Style paragraph paragraph. Rule, color red. Rule, font size 10. Go down, slap second. Styled H1 title. Rule, color brown. Yeah, I guess that's sufficient. I was trying to like think of other like neat little tricks, but that's, good. that's essentially it. I love it. Yeah, so that's it's an example. So just to explain what I did, um, I started by just creating a couple of. Uh, sorry, I had to disable my voice thing. I started by creating a couple of elements. Um, so when I say something like uh, Elm heading, Elm is my own little word for element. So I get the like angled brackets H1, and it moves my cursor between the open and close tag. So then I said title hello world, and title is a formatter that just capitalizes every word. So I get hello world as like a in a sentence, but with every word capitalized. Right, title case. I say slap. Slap is actually not my own. It's built into it, which just it moves the cursor to the end of the line and adds a new line, which I actually wish this was a keyboard shortcut. Like I, I find it super, super useful because um, yeah. you, know, you could also just, you know, you could do command right and then enter. Like, so you can do it with That's keyboard. That's what I tend to do, yeah. Uh, but it's like really nice to have it as like a thing you can just utter. Um, so I did that to add my heading and then a paragraph. Um, when I said styled, I think I said styled paragraph paragraph. Uh, that's another custom thing that I made. And this is using style components. Essentially, it's just a way to like create a class. Um, so the first paragraph is the element that I want to target this for, uh, a paragraph. And then the second one is the actual name. Uh, so I chose a little bit of a redundant thing. The next thing I said was like styled heading one title. And in that case, it creates, um, I think I just said styled heading, which defaults to an H1. Um, it creates like an H1 that is called title. 
Uh, and then when I said rule color red, rule is my own little shortcut. And what it does is the next two words that I utter, the first word becomes the property, and the second word, or uh, however many words I put after that, is the value. And then I have little formatters to like add the pixel tags if I need to and things like mm. that. What happens if you mess up? Yeah. You know, like if you're like, uh, rule yeah. color red. Don't oh. do that. Don't mess up. So the, yeah. like a what lot of the times, then? I just map from whatever I would do with typing. So I would just say command zip, and zip is the word for the letter Z. Um, so I would just undo using the standard keyboard shortcut. Um, and if I want to undo it, you can say, un, you can say command zip fourth, and you'll press, press command Z three times or four times. Right. Um, so that's essentially, there probably is uh, like talent specific ways to do some of this stuff. Like I think you can actually just say undo that, but I just use the keyboard shortcut because it's kind of the same, uh, kind of the same thing in my mind. Right. When you're doing this kind of coding is, having had the ability to do it with your hands still yet even, but just with some pain at some point, but then via voice, like, is there a preference? Like, would you prefer to do it with your hands? Is, do you find it somewhat maybe even different in the way that what you're able to create with your voice even like, is there, there might be an obvious preference, but I'm just not sure. Yeah, no, that's a fair question. I'd say that overall, I do think that I prefer typing. And part of that too, is that, you know, I have three or four months of dictation practice and, you know, 25 years of typing experience. So there is a little bit of an asymmetry there just in terms of practice. I'd say for about like 10 to 20% of the things that I do, dictation actually is better and faster. Um, so a good example would be creating a styled component, right? Um, if I was to do that with typing, I would have to type const, C-O-N-S-T, space, the name of the thing, space, equals, space, the word styled, dot, the element, the tick, I'd have to press enter, a second tick, right? There's a lot of like fussing about, whereas if I say styled title heading or styled heading title, um, it's much faster to say that than to type all those characters. So there are cases in which it's faster, but the cases in which it's faster are cases that I do often enough that I've taken the time to like explicitly write a little Python to have that right. work. For like general case, like if you're doing, you know, just general like data munging or whatever, like non-standard things, it does feel a fair bit slower. I would say that I'd estimate my dictation speed in terms of raw output is about a quarter to a third of my typing speed. Now, that's not to say that my overall output is a quarter to a third, because I think a lot of programming is thinking and planning and all of that stuff is unchanged. So, sure. uh, you know, for like relatively trivial things like implementing a mock-up where there's nothing too wild in the design, that feels quite a bit slower because a lot of that is typing. Uh, but if it's like solving some hard problem, it do, it's kind of a wash because most of your time is spent like thinking and trying to figure out how to solve this problem. And debugging is similarly just a matter of like trying, like write 15 characters and then test it. Um, and that stuff doesn't take too long, uh, too much longer. Is there any context switching that goes on in your brain when you go between the thinking and the dictating? Because I feel like as I get into flow, I'm typing and that is second nature. I'm thinking the solution, but I'm not really necessarily thinking the keystrokes and the, the logistics of getting it into the machine. But because you have to say those out loud, do you find any context switching back and forth between what was I trying to do again? Oh yeah, now I'm going to do it. I have to say this, I have to say that. Or does that also melt away over time? It does melt away. And that's kind of, uh, a couple of people have asked me like, hey, I sprained my wrist, should I look into this? And what I tell people is, if you are not going to be able to type for two months or longer, give it a shot. If it's less than two months, probably not worth it. Uh, and you know, granted, it really depends on your situation. And this is a broad statement. If you, if you really need to get stuff done, then yeah, go for it. But in my case, the first couple of months were frustrating and difficult uh, for exactly that reason, which is 
the process, it's like you're tripping over your own feet. Like the process of actually vocalizing stuff is making you lose your train of thought. And it doesn't, you can't get into that flow state because it's, you're so focused on the process. But definitely I'd say after that, those two months, I've gotten to the point now where um, it is kind of just second nature and it's just the same thing as typing. It just, it becomes muscle memory, I guess. Can it be a muscle if it's your throat? I guess that's a muscle, Uh, a similar kind of muscle memory. Yeah, (laughs) different muscles. What about scenarios? Like you probably couldn't go to, I mean, sure we're in a pandemic, so it sort of limits this, but could you do this in a coffee shop? You know, could you, there are some limitations in terms of your environment that you can be in to do this maybe well. I'm I'm assuming you probably could do it in a coffee shop, but it might be difficult because is it, does Talon know your voice in particular? Is it able to only channel your voice? I know whenever I'm speaking to even like uh, phone numbers, you call like 800 numbers for your bank or whatever. Like I can't have anybody in the background saying thing because next thing you know, option one is pressed instead of option two or, <laughs> you know, whatever. Like, you know, any noise in the background totally disrupts the, you know, the, the flow of what I'm trying to do. What yeah. does it look for you? So there's kind of two aspects to that, right? One is like how much does the environment affect the technology? And the other is like just how can you do this when surrounded by people? Like the other kind of like does this bother the people around you? And is it is it problematic in that way? Um, for the first one, actually for both of these, uh, thanks to Emily's talk, Pearl Out Loud, I discovered that they sell this thing. It's like you strap it over your face and it's like there's a mi- it's like a mask with a built-in microphone. It looks a little silly. Um, mm-hmm. But I imagine that would kind of solve both of these problems where it, it really makes it so that your voice is the only thing being picked up and it muffles your voice to the point that like you're probably not disturbing uh, people around you. And my snarky answer anyway, because a couple of people have said like, you couldn't do this in an open office, right? It would be, it would make working in an open office miserable. And my thing is always like, isn't it already? Like, is it really right, going to yeah. make it that much worse? Pandemic bonus, you get a free mask out of the deal, right? And that's already the, out there as a mask. I thought that too, like, you know, a few months ago, a couple of years ago now, I guess, it would look a little silly, at least in this country uh, or this part of the world to be wearing this mm-hmm. face covering. But now it's just, you know, it's, it's every you stand day out if you don't. Right you can right even in. style it now, you get, but you can bedazzle it if you wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> be like, yeah, that guy's cool. So you could, if you wanted to, code in a coffee shop. What about, I suppose, pair programming? Well, yeah, pair programming or anybody else even around you. Like, do I guess people wouldn't get annoyed. So if you're working from home, I guess my wife hears me speak into a microphone often. So if I'm speaking so my I. words to code, probably not that big of a deal. But if you're talking uh, about I mean, slapping people over and over again, true, like, slap, slap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say who's that, that guy slapping over there. <laughs> It really depends on your situation, right? I'm very privileged in that I have a dedicated home office so I can lock myself in here and I'm not bothering anybody. Sure. Um, yeah. Certainly there is, you know, when I started this, it, my partner would occasionally like pop his head in and just say like, are you talking to me? Like what's going on in here? Uh, and it's, you know, you can be a little self-conscious too. It's like, you're not used to like speaking out loud. It's like a weird thing. But uh, in my case, and I recognize that everyone's situation is different. If you have a private space, then that really uh, it kind of nullifies that concern once you get over just the, the self-consciousness of it. Can you speak to maybe since you've been doing front end for quite a while and, you know, Ally and these various things that we got to deal with in terms of front end developers, like we're the front line in many cases to implement and care about uh, accessibility. Can you talk about maybe your transition from, I guess, everyday front end or to someone with this this problem that have to like care about, I suppose, maybe even more because you're sort of in the trenches with it? Yeah. So, I mean, actually, when I started this, the coworker who suggested this to me said, like, even if it doesn't work out at the very least, it's an interesting accessibility case study. 
because now yeah. it's like an involuntary like uh, being thrown in the deep end of like trying to use the web without a mouse and keyboard. I should also say that <clears throat> it started with my left arm and I'm right-handed. So for the first little bit, it was actually kind of all right with the dictation because I still had a mouse um, and I would vocalize. And the, you can even get clever with that, right? Because like as I'm talking, I'm already planning where my next step is going to be so I can have the mouse right in position. So the second it outputs those characters, I click and I can keep talking. You get in this nice flow. Um, but then my right arm started exactly the same thing. Not sure why. I didn't have the same kind of initial injury, but my right arm, probably because I started relying so much on my right arm because I kept my left arm doing absolutely nothing. And my right arm had to like shoulder all of that burden. Um, but uh, sorry, what was the question? <laughs> oh, just accessibility. Yeah, and the, like, the empathy, I suppose, because I mean, you always care, but it's, you know, things change, you know, problems in the world change whenever you experience them personally. And yeah. so while you may have cared beforehand, you know, maybe after dealing with this and then obviously having to do such stretch, you know, such measures to continue to do your job and to enjoy what you do, you know, it probably has to give you a different perspective on implementing and caring about being a front, you know, being a frontliner essentially in, in, uh, in the ally world and uh, accessibility world. Like the front enders are pretty much who implements that stuff. So it's us who cares anyways, but like you double care now. Yeah. And that's, it has been, you know, I would have told you before all of this that accessibility was important and I always knew it was important, but it was theoretical, right? Like I had never watched someone struggle to use a thing that I had built uh, because I neglected to take into account how they were using computers. So it was always this abstract notion, right? I want to do this because it's the right thing to do. Essentially, you're just following a style guide and just hoping that it works. Whereas now you get to realize that, oh, this is like actually a thing that people, like this is actually how people use the internet. And it is awful in a lot of cases because so many websites have neglected the absolute like the stuff that you get for free right like the, the little focus outline that everyone hides because they think it's like not cosmetic until i got the eye tracker and we should talk about eye tracking i was essentially a keyboard user in terms of how it worked because i would say the word tab and it would navigate me and i could do the same like tab fifth to jump by five spaces right but that was my way of navigating because i couldn't use a mouse because my right arm was bothering me and i hadn't yet discovered eye tracking that was like a two or three week period. So it wasn't long, but it was enough, right? Just in your day-to-day -day internet usage that like, oh, this is really awful. And you have to make like educated guesses as to what's being focused right now. Uh, if you have a little area in the, like a side panel that isn't scrolled and you want to scroll it, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> so I would just not do it. Or I would mm -hmm. like pull out a mouse and be cursing the person. Because um, it's just, you know, like normally you would use a mouse wheel, but I don't have a mouse wheel. So there's definitely a lot of like empathy that is given through this experience. And it's just made me like even more appreciate how important this stuff is. And I think it's so important to recognize that it isn't binary, right? Like you, it's not that like there are disabled people, which are other people. And then there's non-disabled people, right? Able right. people, which is, it's like, we're all kind of somewhere along the spectrum and it's not immutable. It changes over time. So just because you're not experiencing any disabilities right now doesn't mean that's going to be the case forever. And like really the best case, right? The, unless we all get hit by a bus, not to be too morbid. The best case is that we get old enough that our vision starts to deteriorate our, mush, our uh, muscle, like uh, what's the word where it's like your uh, motor control. Motor is the mm -hmm. word I was looking for. There um, you, go. you lose a bit of motor functionality. So there's a lot of little like uh, all of us will be affected by this at some point. And there's even like temporary things. Like I know that... Uh, Jen Luker has made this point that like, if you're holding a baby in that moment, you only have access to one hand and that changes your experience using the web. 
So there's a lot of uh, a lot of perspective that has been given to me involuntarily through this process. That's the I guess the fun side of user experience too is that you think about all the scenarios your users might be in, you know, whether they are disabled or they are they are abled, or they're temporarily disabled because they have a baby in their left arm and they've only got the right arm and maybe their dominant arm, but still yet they're they're one handed temporarily. That's the fun I suppose part of being on that front end, being in user experience and thinking through those fun things. But you um, you definitely have a different perspective having gone through something yourself, temporary or long-term. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I'd say that it's also, it's tricky because it's not just one thing, right? Like it's not just like my site is accessible because it's keyboard navigable because what about people that are colorblind? Like, can they use it? Often you have kind of competing interests and I'm, I'm really into animation. And this is something I struggle with sometimes where for people that have vestibular disorders, animation can cause motion sickness and uh, other kind of, you can get nauseous, get a headache. Um, but animation can also be like a usability win because it can make things a little bit easier to understand for people that have cognitive cognitive disabilities. So there is kind of sometimes trade-offs there. And fortunately, I think browser vendors and operating systems manufacturers are starting to become aware of this and giving that control to users. So for specifically with motion, there's a media query, prefers reduced motion. And that way right. users can specify, hey, I don't want to have any of this sweeping motion. And then the developer still has to take that into account. But at least we have we have that control now. We can we can tune the experience for the user. Well, we shouldn't go too far without talking about the eye tracking, because we've teased it twice at this point. And it's pretty <laughs> intriguing. It's so definitely the most sci-fi part of my setup. Yeah. So before you had eye tracking, you were basically tabbing around using keyboard navigation to navigate everything, your web browser, your operating system. Yep. But then you figured out eye tracking. Tell us about that. Yeah. So it's actually part of the same software, Talon Voice. They have support for the eye tracker. And this is very, very easy to get confused. Uh, so I want to make sure to like be very explicit. The device that I have is called the Tobi 5, T-O-B-I-I. And when you go to the device manufacturer's website, it's this like Windows Hello gaming, like augment your gaming skills kind of thing. It doesn't look like a mouse replacement at all, and it only supports Windows. The idea is that the people who built Talon Voice built custom drivers for this hardware, this piece of hardware. So even though the intended purpose of this, this piece of hardware isn't a mouse replacement, it functions like that cross-platform. So it works on Mac, mm. uh, Linux, and Windows. And the idea is uh, it's a bar that you strap. It looks like a, 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 an Xbox Connect. It kind of has that kind of an idea. Uh, you okay. strap it to the front of your monitor, and it has little infrared sensors. So it can tell where you're looking, essentially. It's not the most precise, but they've accounted for that. So the way that it works is you look at where you want to click, and you make a little popping noise, like a And it zooms way in. So maybe like a 4-inch by 4-inch, 4-inch uh, by 3-inch rectangle zooms way in, and now you're like, because you're so zoomed in, you can make really fine adjustments. So you can move, you know, you move your eye a little bit and the mouse moves over maybe four inches in real life space, but it's like a couple dozen pixels because it's so zoomed in and you make the popping noise again to actually perform the click. You can also say uh, righty if you want to right click. Um, I, you can actually, I don't think this is intentional, but it works. You can just kind of do like a, I don't know if that came out clearly, but it, like a double pop and it will double okay. click. Um, 
So that's like kind of the idea with that is uh, it, it tracks where you're looking. The nice thing is that it, it's not activated till you make that popping noise. And there are settings mm-hmm. for this. Like you can actually have it be always active. Tweak it. But then it's super distracting because you have this like jittery cursor that's always right where you're looking. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> it's not the best experience. Uh, so this is like, it, it's out of the way, right? It, you don't notice it till you need it. And then you make a little pop noise, you get the zoom in. And all of this happens super quickly. Like it probably sounds really tedious, but we're talking like maybe 250 milliseconds between both. Like you can do it really, really rapidly. So pop, pop. it's, yeah. So people asked you, would they set up Talon if they have some pain? And you said, well, two months or more. Otherwise, it's not worth the trouble. Is the eye tracking in that same conversation? Or like, could this be generally useful to be awesome and better at computing, being a computer person? Yeah. Just have it available whenever you want it. And just like, if I need to pop in and pop out, I can be like super computer person. That's a good question. Yeah, like I imagine if, uh, and I don't know how, uh, if this is a combination that is possible, but if you can't use a mouse but can use a keyboard, then yeah. totally, yeah. This And actually, I, I can imagine a bunch of cases, right? Because a mouse requires a lot of like dexterity and key typing may not. Um, totally. I could totally see that, yeah. Because there isn't like, you know, the learning curve is really around the dictation. The eye tracking you get used to in a couple of days. And then it's yeah. just become this, it's, it's this nice thing that just works. So yeah, totally. Yeah, a lot of people, the mouse is specifically what gives them the pain. You know, it's the it's the weight of it and dragging it. And so switching to a trackpad, or sometimes they have those ergonomic mice that are like vertical, and it's like a ball that you roll around like that, that oftentimes will be good enough. But if not, but you, you have no trouble typing, then maybe eye tracking's for you. Yeah, and there are, what I've come to realize is there's a lot of mouse interactions that I don't even think of that I use heavily, like dragging and dropping is a good example. Scrolling, right? Using a mouse wheel is another. Dragging and dropping, you can do. And uh, I don't do it often enough to remember offhand, but you say something uh, instead of making the pop noise. Like, So you make the pop to zoom in, then you say something, and then you kind of move the mouse and say something else to release it in that case. And it works surprisingly well. Um, scrolling, I, I don't know... Like for that, that's one of the activities that I just use the trackpad for now uh, because mm-hmm. I, I've gotten accustomed enough. Uh, one of the things too, like when I started, I would still have the mouse and keyboard on the desk and I would forget and I wouldn't remember until my elbow starts burning a few minutes later and then I'd regret it the next day. So I removed all that stuff from my desk. But now I've gotten comfortable enough, well, both because it's getting better, but also because I've gotten used to this alternative setup that I just always have a trackpad. If I need to scroll, I'll use that. If I uh, need to click, I'll just use the popping and it, it works pretty well. I think I would have difficulty learning how to pop like that so quickly and accurately. It's, Can't pop. It is kind of... I can do it once. I'm pretty <laughs> good at pretty just good. the once, but not, not two times. Good. Maybe I can do it. Well, okay, never well, mind. I'm pretty good. I'd say like... <laughs> I, can 90, do, I can do this. <laughs> yeah, you just learn. Bring out Toby. Let's do it. <laughs> He's a convert. There you go. All right. <laughs> pop, it, pop. It is the kind of thing where sometimes if your mouth is dry, like you start noticing all the right. subtle different environmental factors of your mouth that affect that. Absolutely. I've got... Mm. Uh, a less than one year old, so I'm always doing <laughs> to that kid, you know. So unless my lips are a little bit moist, it ain't happening. Like yeah. it just turns out into like a buzz or something like that. So, yeah, listeners, this is the first time you're getting a lot of uh, effects, a lot of <laughs> random random noises from Adam here. <laughs> Put those together and make a beat. Yeah. So, Josh, are you ever have voice strain, or do you ever feel like just ex- you're not mentally exhausted. We already talked about that aspect, but what about your voice? I like yeah. sore throats or any trouble there. So this is totally something that it was the most frustrating thing in the world where when I got really into the hang of this, you know, you, you're speaking for eight hours a day if you're doing a typical workload. And my voice, my throat very quickly got unhappy with that. And so I was limited to four or five hours a day before my throat would get sore. And if 
couple times I let it get too sore and then I had to like take a couple days break. Um, and my solution for that is twofold. One is I got a bunch of law. I got like the family pack of lozenges. So I was going through a couple of those a day. I also got a humidifier for my office, which is actually on right now and kind of making a nice little mist. Um, Mm -hmm. but essentially just making sure that like the, the humidity in my room is always between 50 and 60%, uh, and drinking lots of water is another thing. It certainly Mm -hmm. becomes, uh, it's like an annoying thing that you have to deal with. Uh, but I imagine that there are people who can do this. Uh, you know, there's just like so many careers involve speaking all day. So right. I imagine that it's, uh, and even in the couple of months I've been doing it, I've noticed getting a little bit more stamina there where my voice doesn't give out so easily. Yeah, I would expect it to build over time. I know when I switched to a standing desk probably 10 years ago now, I couldn't stand all day. You know, it was like an hour here, an hour there. And then I built up to where like I'd stand in the morning, sit in the afternoon. And then six months later, I would stand for six hours and now I don't even think about it years later. It's just like my legs and my feet are just used to that strain mm-hmm. because I just built them up. So I, I imagine, you know, five years of this and you probably wouldn't even think about it in terms of, of the strain. But when you get started, it's got to be annoying, especially because like this is like your thing that you're doing to fix your problem. And now it's like so it's causing a brand new problem, right? It does feel a little bit like, like, ah, how can it's just like everything is going wrong all at once. Yeah, it can be discouraging, especially because, you know, it's it's often you're in a discouraging situation already. Uh, but I always just kind of try to keep on the bright side and just think that like maybe this is a good opportunity to like and granted, this, it also didn't help that this was during lockdown. So it's like let's go out and do something. Well, you can't really do that either. But, you know, just like take a moment to like be present and enjoy just, you know, just essentially like take it as an opportunity. Uh, like you're blocked from doing work, but just, you know, it's for myself, at least I find that I'm always like raring to get stuff done. And part of this has just been like being comfortable, not doing that and just, you know, living your life and then like go make a nice meal and spend time with my partner and, you know, just like do those like nice things that I always uh, didn't save enough time for. The hard part about monitoring incredibly complex architecture means that you're probably monitoring with a dozen different tools. And when something goes wrong, you can waste a ton of time jumping between those various tools just to figure out what happened. That's painful. Our friends at New Relic want to change that, and they're giving you one user and 100 gigs a month completely free to try out. New Relic is three products in one platform. First, you bring all your data from any source into the telemetry data platform. It's a schemaless time series database, so it runs super fast. It's also fully managed, which means it scales without being a burden on you or your team. And next, you analyze and visualize that data in full stack observability, which gives you everything you need for monitoring and troubleshooting. You can follow an issue from metrics to events to traces to logs in a few clicks. Then things get even easier with automated detection and incident intelligence. They have applied intelligence, which analyzes your data and system to make sure those key connections are made for you. If there's an anomaly and make sure the alert goes to the right person and only the right person. And best of all, they have super simple pricing to make it easy. Head to newrelic.com to get started for free with one user and hundred gigs per month. It's totally free forever. Again, newrelic.com. And by our friends at Equinix Metal, have you ever seen a problem and thought to yourself, I bet I could do that better? Our friends at Equinix agree. Equinix is the world's digital infrastructure company, and they've been connecting and powering the digital world for over 20 years now. They just launched a new product called Equinix Metal. It's built from the ground up to empower developers with low latency, high performance infrastructure anywhere. We'd love for you to try it out and give them your feedback. 
Visit metal.equinix.com slash changelog. Get $500 in free credit to play with, plus a rad t-shirt. Again, metal.equinix.com slash changelog. Get $500 in free credit. Equinix Metal. Build freely. So this experience has given you renewed vigor with regard to the importance of accessibility. Anything else you've learned over the last few months as you put this into place and been able to slowly move back into somewhat more of regular life as a coder, but what have you learned through this process? Yeah, I'd say that there's three like main takeaways that I've had. And the first we kind of just talked about is accessibility really matters and it is like a real thing, right? It's not just some abstract good that you do. You don't. It's not just about like getting the lighthouse score to feel good about yourself. It's about like, is this actually a good experience for people, and how can I verify that? Um, so that's 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 takeaway number one. Takeaway number two is a, a bit more positive, which is just that it is not catastrophic if you're not able to type, right? It's, it's not career ending. It's certainly inconvenient, and it takes a few months to get used to it. But there's, there's an option here that is viable. And I think that's, you know, a lot of people worry, right? People that might have an experience like a close call. And it's just always in the back of their mind, like, what if I lose that? And actually, you mentioned that earlier. Um, so I think that's yeah. super, super common. And hopefully this is a reassuring little bit of just like, there is an option. It's totally viable, right? I could see myself doing this if my situation doesn't improve. It's totally like, my career isn't going anywhere. It's sustainable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It may be tedious, but you think you could do this for 10 years and just oh, yeah. 20 years. and Yeah. Yeah. That's good to know for people, you know, like, well, if worse comes to worse, this is an option for people. Yeah, absolutely. I think that if you have enough of a will, uh, the technology exists to provide a way. Um, so that's the second thing. The third thing is just like, don't, don't dilly dally with the things that you want to do in life. Um, and so, you know, I, I've had this idea in the back of my head for a few years now that I wanted to start some sort of online education thing. I've been teaching at a boot camp part time for the past couple of years. Um, it's always been something I've been interested in, but in my mind, I had like an infinite span of time ahead of me. And so like, you know, I'm enjoying my job just working as like an individual contributor. Why not keep doing that? And, you know, this experience, as much as this isn't, uh, I consider this kind of a close call in the sense that like, it's not catastrophic. My life was never in danger, but it was still like enough of a wake up call that like, you don't have unlimited output, right? Like you have a finite amount of typing you will do in your life. And if there's something you want to do, like spend that resource wisely. So uh, I left my job. Uh, I was working as a staff software engineer at Gatsby. I am now self-employed, and I'm building an online course to help teach, uh, I mean, starting with CSS, but a bunch of stuff to other developers. Well, congratulations. Yeah. A big move. Is that scary for you, or is it just exciting? <laughs> a bit of both. I should also say that I'm in the... like. I'm in a very privileged position, which is that my cost of living is relatively low. I have a decent amount of money saved up. So there isn't a lot of financial pressure yet. Now, if we get to like a year from now and things aren't going so well, I I expect I'll feel very differently. But as it stands, I have a comfortable cushion and I'm able to just focus on this thing that I want to do. Really, I just feel really excited about it. It, You know, it's uh, certainly a thing that I've wanted to do for a long time and it's, it's thrilling to be able to finally do it. Yeah. Well, I'll say you're a good writer, and we found your blog post, and I've seen the other things, and you have an eye for animation and design, which I think is enviable. So you're set up, and you have the desire to educate, so it seems like you're well-positioned. That being said, you know, training and education and this kind of thing is a crowded space. There's a lot of people trying to help developers learn things. So I'm curious, your angle at the industry or your thoughts on, like, what are you trying to build, and 
why is it, you know, interesting or neat in your mind? Yeah. So it is totally like, I am not going to create uh, a resource for learning something that is not already prevalent, right? Like there is already a million ways to learn everything. But my thinking for this has been twofold. Um, one is that as much as there is educational resources, none of them are me. And everyone has like their own learning style and everyone has their own teaching style. And so it totally. will be a sort of, you know, it will appeal to some amount of people. It will not appeal to others. And that's kind of the goal, right? Don't make something that's aimed to be for everybody. Make something that a smaller segment will really appreciate. And the second way I've been thinking about this is find something that is already taught, but cover it from a new angle. And so the course that I'm building is called CSS for JavaScript Developers. It's kind of all there in the name. Um, so many JS developers, and myself included for a long time, have picked up CSS incidentally, right? Like you learn about properties as you need them, but you never take the time to understand at a deeper level, like what is the rendering algorithm and why does it behave this way? And why is it like all of these, you know, you run into a problem, you find the solution on Stack Overflow, you copy paste a couple snippets and it works, but you don't know why it works. And next time it breaks, you won't know how to fix it. Um, there's so many folks in that position. And all of the resources that teach CSS kind of teach it from the like perspective of like a WordPress developer or someone building like a static HTML CSS website. There's not a lot of like how to use CSS effectively with like React or Vue or Angular. So that's kind of the 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 angle I'm taking this at. And it's not so much like a lot of that is just in the framing, like how you cover stuff. So like I try to use analogies that will be relevant for JavaScript developers, right? Talking about like, for example, the cascade in CSS is actually just like a bunch of spread operators put one on top of the other. So like little mm -hmm. things like that, like trying to find ways to describe content based on things that JavaScript developers will already know. I don't think that exists. So I think yeah. that'll be a nice uh, bit of fresh air for people. I tend to agree. I think that's an interesting angle and there's definitely a market there. There's lots of us who either don't know CSS, are afraid of CSS, or use it in anger, uh, <laughs> kind of as you described, yeah. which is like, I'm using it because I need to get this thing done, but I don't know why this works, and I'm just going to shove it in there, and, oh, it's slightly off, I'll just, you know, move this one or two things, okay, there it is, never touch it again, right? <laughs> um, there's a lot of people that aren't like that, but there are plenty of us who are like that, and notice I'm using the the plural form of the first person because I've definitely had such feels as that over the years. Um, so that's cool. I mean, I think there's definitely a place for people to come into that space and say, look, CSS is not just uh, something you have to use, but it's actually something that you can wield to great, to great success if you understand it better. Yeah. And what I think is really interesting is that like, you know, there's, so many people that are really comfortable with JavaScript, right? And whether that's vanilla JavaScript or with an application. And just like, imagine if you could have that level of comfort with CSS, like you could build whatever you want. Like there's all sorts of doors open now because you have the complete tool. I'm assuming, you know, HTML as well. You have the complete sure. toolkit, right? Like now you know how to do web development, start to bottom uh, or start to end top to bottom. So yeah, that's kind of the, the, the ambition with this is to get people to feel mm -hmm. comfortable with it and to enjoy tackling it, right? Like, not to say that like I never get confused and have to like spend time debugging, but I always know I can like no matter what mockup you present me with, I will be able to find a way to build it, or I'll have a reason as to why the platform doesn't allow for it. Um, but it's like even if I get stuck on something, it's like a fun challenge in the same way that it is like with React or with anything else. It's not this like foreboding stressful thing that takes me out of my flow. Mm -hmm. So how'd you get over the hump? 
personally with CSS? Like what brought you from somebody who was maybe in that camp or you said you had some frustrations with it at one point to being to the point where you're like, I can teach this to others and you must, you must like it if you want to teach it and expand it, right? Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things that probably four or five years ago, I was frustrated with not being good at it. So I did, it was a somewhat concerted effort of just like, not just taking things at face value, right? So like when you find a snippet that works, don't just like copy paste it and move on, like poke at it, see like, why does this not work this way? Go to the MDN documentation and dig into it. Like understand every property, every declaration has like a whole page on MDN, right? You can go to like figure out flex grow and just learn all kinds of little details about it. And that's kind of what I did for several years. Like I would just never miss an opportunity to dig into something and just build that intuition, like a working mental model of how does this property work? How does it interact with all these other properties that can be often be paired with, right? Why does min width behave like do funky things when it's inside a flex container. Um, I mean, I, I don't actually know the answer to that question in terms of like why. <laughs> no, honestly, but I know asking, yeah. why. <laughs> but I know how. Like I know how to use it and how to get it to right. do what I want. Which is that's the other thing too. Like it's not. I don't want to make this sound too theoretical. It's definitely like a practical how to build user interfaces. We're not going to talk about like browser vendor decisions. We're just going to talk about like this is this is like how to do the thing that you want, and this is how it interacts with these other properties. What's the state of this course so far? Is it in the works? Is it is there a landing page? You know, yeah. what's is so, it a buy it all, learn it all? Is it sort of over time? What's the format? Yeah. So because I'm a developer and because I uh, don't have enough self control, I'm building my own platform instead of just using an existing one. I do have a good reason for this though, which is uh, we all do. If you've been to my blog, like I, I really enjoy these interactive experimental widgets. And by experimental, I mean like you can experiment with it, right? Like uh, a lot of my, like when I teach the bootcamp, like if I can find a way to make a little interactive thing that people can play with, I did this when I was covering spring physics most recently. Um, it's just like a really, really nice way to learn things. And none of the platforms that exist will support this. So I'm building my own platform. Um, it's going to be kind of a self-paced thing. I'm currently aiming for around 15 modules. I have, I think, three that are in rough draft shape. So I'm still very early in the process, although I've done a lot of the like platform development upfront. So that's probably like 75% of the way there. And now it's just about doing the material and coming up with good ways to learn something. The, the goal really is for it to be multimodality in the sense that it's not a video course where you just sit and watch me talk. There will be videos. But they all, every kind of content serves a purpose. So a video might be like a high-level int introduction or like a, here's how to use the browser dev tools to do this thing in a way that just is so much easier to watch someone do it. Um, articles are a great way because they're indexable. You can come back to search for them, right? You can skip through them really quickly. Interactive explanations to like poke at something and develop that internal working mental model. And then exercises, so opportunities to practice, challenges to build stuff with a solution, stuff like that. So it's a lot of different formats that I, I'm yeah. hopefully uh, using strategically in a sense that each of them will play to their own strengths and produce like a really effective, really efficient way to learn this thing where it's not going to take uh, too much time and hopefully optimize for that. Sounds like you have a lot of work still ahead of you. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely early going. I'm talking about like I'm hoping to launch this thing in February of next year and I'm starting to realize that's a little optimistic. But mm -hmm. uh, that's kind of the plan. Uh, mm -hmm. You can learn more, but like there is a landing page. It's css4js.dev. So it's, it's like a play on CSS in JS. So it's the letter css-in-js.dev. You can also go to cssinjs.com. Um, and there you'll learn a little bit more about it. And uh, there's a, you can sign up for updates and I'll email you with little tidbits as I go along. Cool. So the platform's 75% done. So you only have 75% left. 
<laughs> and then uh, then the course is you got three out of 15, so you have uh, 18 more modules, and then you'll be ready to go. <laughs> I am very much aware that that last 20% is actually like most of the work. But uh, yeah. That's all right, though. Yeah. If you love what you do, then it's just more of the stuff that you love. And that right? is like, like if you I like creating this stuff, then. I'm having so much it's fun with good. it, especially now that I'm yeah. able to actually type for a few hours a day. It's just I'm I'm having a blast, and I'm super excited to to share more about how it's going and what uh, what it'll look like. What about building your list in advance? I know you blog. Are you, do you have any blogging plans in between now and then to sort of help you arrive to a room full of people versus arrive to a room full of nobody? Yeah, or and less that is. People? I mean, you know, it's one of those things where I have no. Uh, I, I remind myself conf- constantly that there is no guarantee that this will work, right? It's possible right. I'll launch this and sell very little and essentially discover that this is just not uh, not the, the career change I had hoped it was. But uh, I do have a blog. The blog has a mailing list. I think I'm at about 16,000 subscribers now, which I think is a pretty healthy number. And uh, mm-hmm. I do still plan to keep blogging. My blog post will probably take on a little bit more of a CSS uh, twist, because I, I blog a lot about Gatsby and React and animation, and I, mm-hmm. I have blogged about CSS as well, but especially now that you know, it, I kind of want the two to play into each other, so that people who are interested in the blog posts will have a resource that they can continue learning if they like my style and uh, are interested in it. Speaking of style, I like how you use sound along with animation. That's a pretty interesting thing. I'm sure you'll teach about it, but could you give us a snippet of why those two play well together and what you like about it? Yeah. Oh, that's such a good question. So. I find that, I mean, everything has its place, and this is not something that I would advocate for everywhere, but uh, mobile applications are really, really good at reaching in to other human senses, right? So like on the web, we have one, you have, you can see what's happening, but you you don't usually hear websites. There isn't usually a sound element. Mobile apps have three, like you can see them, you can hear them, and you can feel them because there's haptic feedback. So I find that there's so many mobile apps that just do a really good job. And it doesn't have to be over the top, right? A little confirmation sound when you click a button uh, or tap a button, I guess, on mobile can be really, really satisfying. And it's it's the kind of thing that can make a product feel more tangible and real, right? Like, it's the same thing with animation. Things in real life don't just, you know, if you click on a link, uh, or like, let's say you have a draw, like an accordion kind of thing, you click on it and it slides down. Things in real life don't just teleport or, like, get repainted from one frame to the next. There's a process there. When things move, you can see them. Like there's, you know, individual mm-hmm. steps. So that's why I think animation is so worthwhile is it it makes a thing feel more real. And sound just adds to that because similarly, things are not silent in real life, right? If you move a thing, it usually makes a sound. Yeah. So on my website, which is just my name, joshwcomo.com, um, you do have to click somewhere first because the web API doesn't let you play sound until you've interacted with the page. But if you right. hover over, I think it's just at the top, it's called tutorials. There's a little drop down that pops out and it makes like a little whoop sound. And, you know, I, I should also say that I went to school for uh, audio recording technology. So my only post-secondary education is a trade school in sound design uh, or sound recording. So I had I have a bit of a background that gives me the ability to like make my own sounds and edit sounds and uh, essentially just try to come up with things that are really appropriate for the situation. But I do find that it adds so much to the experience. Uh, it's, a, it's one of those like little big details, right? Like it's not going to change anyone's life or dramatically change their perception, but it's enough to like ah, like it catches your attention. I dig the uh, this. I, don't, I think it's like a speaker. I think, and when you turn the sound on or off, so that way if you have a preference, you're like, hey, I don't want any sounds. I can turn it off and you get that final sound as it goes away, which is when it comes back, it's sort of like a little digital uh, shocking. I don't know what it sounds like. A trill, I think is how I would describe it. Is that what it is? Okay. I mean, that that's just my own word. Those um, are cool. 
I appreciate that. And that is, you know, it's, uh, I mentioned briefly that uh, there's a time and a place for everything. Not everyone wants sound. I've gotten some fair criticism that when you sign up for my newsletter, there's like a trumpety sound. And people have mentioned that like their volume was way up and it was startling and uncomfortable and like it woke their baby up. Um, yeah. So I've actually made it an attempt to like tone some of unexpected sounds. Yeah. It's when you have interaction like with a sound button or even a nighttime menu where it's like nighttime or daytime menu to swap the theme. That's where you would expect potentially some sound if the designer or the developer was, you know, keen on giving you that. But I can agree with signing up for a newsletter and hearing a trumpet sound might be like, whoa, did not expect that. <laughs> yeah, my solution for that, because I do like the sound, honestly, is I've set it to like 25% volume. So it's it's not going to be like this overblown kind of shocking thing unless like you really have your sound cranked. But then... right. Uh, then pretty much, uh, I think if you have your sound that loud, you're, you're bound to have some sort of unpleasant experience at some point. It's funny to talk about the how s- the sounds because I just upgraded to Big Sur. I'm not sure if either one of you guys have yet or used Mac, but they've redone all the sounds, Ooh. and yes, I like them. I was actually I hadn't even thought about it, but like the trash can sound is different. The bell, you know, like when you hit the wrong button in your terminal is different. Mm-hmm. Every sound delete is different. And I don't really like the redesign all that much. I'm getting used to it. So like the icons and everything, eh, seems like a side grade to me more than an upgrade. But the sounds, I'm telling you, it's worth <laughs> upgrading for the sounds. It's pretty good. So I'm, I'm kind of in the camp of like, I've only played with it for a little bit. So I upgraded, but didn't have time to actually play with the, the machine I, I upgraded on. And the one sound I heard was the deletion sound. And I was like, that's different. I don't know if I like it. I don't have time to discern if I like it, but so far I'm kind of bummed because they've probably changed more. What else will I oh, find? Oh, all that's the sounds the, are different. That's the camp I'm in right now. Mm. Yeah. You're kind of in the who moved my cheese. Yeah, don't moment. move my cheese. And if you do, right. let me know you're going to and give me an opt out. <laughs> no, these are good sounds. I think, Josh, if you're a sound guy, I think you're enjoy this oh, upgrade. I'm excited At least to that. Uh, check, check them all out. Yeah. Curious, since we're on that thread then, uh, the sounds that you have on your site, you made those sounds. What's your process? What did you... Did you use a synth? Did you use your mouth? What would you, yeah. you do? So I should say I've made a few of them, but actually most of them I got from freesound.org, which is just an online repository. It's like a lot of uh, not so good. It's that you kind of have to like sift a little bit, like there's a diamond in the rough kind of situation. Um, but there's a lot of good sounds there. And uh, the ones that I did do myself were usually with my mouth. So I just, with my microphone, I'd record a little sound and then modify mm-hmm. it. Uh, a lot of this, you can get really clever and kind of fun. Like on my homepage, there's a list of categories, and when you hover over them, they make like a little, like a little kind of soft pop sound, and that's actually the sound of a plunger being unstuck. But I truncated it, so normally it's like a, and I just kind of took off the opening sound. It makes this like satisfying little pop. Um, So yeah, that's totally like little fun. Uh, You can be really creative when it comes to sound design. Very similar to your zoom sound. My zoom sound. Not not exactly the same. Well, when you zoomed into the screen, you're like. Oh, right. That's yeah. not, it's, it's very similar. Oh, it's yeah. in the same vein. Yeah. So I can see why you like it. You have to be careful on your own website. It might start to recursively zoom and unzoom and stuff. <laughs> I don't know. You get stuck on your, your eye tracker, popping it off and on. Well, we'll have to put some of those sounds into this episode, Adam. So there, now you're on the hook to uh, do some extra editing and uh, work some of his sounds <laughs> into this conversation. We'll have to. Because we promised Sweet. the listeners it would happen. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's happening. All right, Josh, anything that we missed or forgot or anything else you want to talk about or questions you wish we would have asked and we failed because we suck at this? 
<laughs> you know, I think we covered everything. I'm really, uh, really thrilled with uh, the chance to be able to talk about it. I think that it's, you know, I mean, the, the main thing that I hope people get out of this is just some reassurance that if, they, uh, if they're worried about having some sort of injury, uh, this is a totally viable path. Uh, and also mm-hmm. just don't, don't neglect to, to make sure you take care of accessibility because it's super important. Absolutely. And I just love the, you know, it's, it's, it's just a very small, but a, a human spirit kind of a, you know, you can't keep us down kind of a thing. Like, well, we'll just kind of find a way around this problem, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, we've done that and you've done that and it's very cool. It's been a, it's a great story. In fact, I remember seeing Emily Shea's talk back in the day and wanting to get her on the changelog. And then when I saw your post, and then I saw you reference her. I'm like, oh, this is it. Josh has to come on the changelog and tell us about this because it's such a cool thing to see people when faced with adversity say, yeah, I'm just going to figure out something else and I'm going to keep doing my thing. And that's pretty neat. I mean, I think that's so much of what we do as developers, right? The thing isn't working. We have to find a workaround. And that's just what I did, right. what I did with mm-hmm. this. And granted, I mean, I, I want to make sure that Emily and Tavis and the whole talent community get a whole bunch of credit because... I probably wouldn't have been able to do this without the existing infrastructure and ecosystem because it, it's, it's an overwhelming problem, but the technology makes it feasible. Yeah, so many people just just will crumble under their adversity. It seems like you've definitely found a way to thrive, and that's obviously enabled by others like you'd mentioned. But yeah, I admire that about you, that you didn't just say, oh, man, this circumstance is terrible, I quit, You know, that you persevered, and then you shared your story, which is the important part. Obviously, we're kind of biased towards sharing stories because we are podcasters. Uh, but we appreciate that about folks in our industry because even though things happen that aren't aren't great or aren't desirable by everybody or you may be in a circumstance that that's just not something you want to be involved in, you know, that you can still sort of find a, a hopeful path and share that, that perspective and story because there's going to be, as you'd mentioned earlier in the show, at some point you may have a baby in your arms, you may be 80, you may be in a circumstance where you know you're not uh, able like you are today, and to give hope whenever that happens, I think is important. Appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I, I almost want to like shy away and deflect some of that because ultimately, it's like what else would I like? It's kind of I had no choice. I, of course, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to do what I can. But I it, the point is well taken, and uh, yeah. certainly that's the the hope is that people right do have a little bit less weight on their shoulders if this is something they're worried about. Absolutely. Well, Josh, thank you so much for sharing your story and sharing your time with us and giving people hope. We appreciate that. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you both. That's it for this episode of The Changelog. Thanks for tuning in. If you haven't heard, we launched Changelog Plus Plus. If you love our content, take it to the next level by showing your support. We want to take you closer to the metal with no ads. Learn more and join at changelog.com slash plus plus. Of course, huge thanks to our partners who get it fastly, Linode, and LaunchDarkly. Also, thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder for making all those awesome beats for us. Thanks again for tuning in. That's it for this week. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.